First Timothy chapter 2. We're the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would open it up to us this morning, uh, that we may learn what you have for us today, that you would teach us, feed us, correct us, inspire us. Um, Help us, Lord, as we seek to live as your people in, in the times that you have placed us in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, when, when you don't preach on a regular schedule like I do, it's sometimes a bit of a challenge to figure out what, what to preach on this time. I'm, I'm, there's kind of a nagging temptation to look at what's been preached before me, before I come. I haven't done that for a while, I confess. So I apologize if I'm preaching the same sermon as last week, but I don't think I am. So I think I'm okay. I trust Dorothy would tell me otherwise. Uh, this was not a hard topic to come up with. Um, we, as I prayed earlier, we are heading into Election Day. I hope that's not news to anybody. You've known that. But, but it's also just, I, I'm someone who is fascinated by the whole political process. I, I, I love the history of it. As someone who's come into Presbyterianism kind of late, I appreciate the method behind the bureaucratic madness. There's a lot of good in that, having... having been raised among people who are a bit more freewheeling and in the spirit and can't understand why things go the way they do when you don't have structure. Um, so I, I appreciate it. I get it. I'm, I'm also a history major, so the history part of it fascinates me as well. And it's also, I mean, it's just a necessary part of life. Love it or hate it, we have to have politics. It just is. And so we have to figure out what to do with it that way. However, I mean, this is... I mean, in my 50-plus years now, I don't remember it ever being like this. Um, anything today can become a political issue. You know, a band you like, a mask you wear, a whatever, a team you fall, anything becomes political these days. Everything has been ramped up, and, and ramped up in a way that it doesn't really matter anymore who you, who you listen to, Whichever way the elections go is a matter of life or death. It's the end of the world. Just, everything is just so overheated and, and almost frantic. And you know, if you go the wrong way, I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, but if you choose the wrong side, the wrath of the righteous falls upon you. And, and then just as, as a result, this increasing divisiveness and even violence, I mean, it's shocking the kinds of things that are being done with, with some sort of tie to where we are as a political nation. That's deeply troubling. But, but most troubling of all, in my opinion, is how easily and fully these excesses in the culture have been absorbed like a sponge into the church. This should be a place where there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, Republican or Democrat. And yet I hear people regularly saying, if you vote with such and such a party or such and such a person, how could they possibly be a Christian? We should bring church discipline. Um, I, I, 
I don't know if you're, you've been following this very closely. You're probably better off if you don't, but, but Christian nationalism is a hot topic these days. As a response to these things, how do we, how, do the church, how does the church, how, how do we as Christians in America recover what we've lost? How do we fight for this hill? How do we regain control? And, and whether you agree with that or not is not really my point, but it just seems like all these things are combining together in a way, I think it just begs the question, but is that what God has for us? Is that, God, is that what God calls us to as his people? Is that really what kind of people we ought to be? So I, want to, I think this passage offers some thoughts on this. And, and, and one of the reasons I chose this passage is not just because of how it addresses, I think, this question, but also because I see in this passage uh, some parallels between the situation in Ephesus and our own. So first of all, the Ephesian church, if you've read 1 Timothy, and, and it doesn't take long to just pop back into verse one, in chapter 1, the Ephesian church is a church that was expect, experiencing some inner turmoil. The reason why Paul was sending Timothy to, to Ephesus in the first place was, yes, to appoint leaders, to appoint elders and deacons, but it was also to counteract the effect of a number of teachers, it seems, that have come in, or maybe not even teachers, but just people into the church who have strong heartfelt convictions about myths and genealogies and doctrines that ring a bell. Well, of course, because the things we don't believe are myths. We, we don't believe in myths, so ours are truth. Anyways, but it was wrecking the church. And, and I would even go so far as to say that maybe some of these things that they were arguing over, fighting over, promoting, were true and right and good, but used to divide, used to disrupt, used to set people one against the other. The church itself was in an interesting place in time. Ephesus was a, a prominent city in the Roman Empire. In fact, it was the third largest city in the empire at that time. The population was somewhere around almost half a million people, which is pretty amazing for that time. Jerusalem at that time would have been somewhere in the fifty to 100,000 range on a good day. So this is a huge city, huge city, very diverse city. It was a provincial capital, according to Caesar Augustus. It was an important port city. In fact, so important, if you know anything about Ephesus, um, Ephesus the, the river that fed into the harbor continually filled it up with silt. So even back in that day, they had to continually dredge it out for it to remain an effective harbor. That tells you something about its importance. We have to keep this line open. This is vital for us to see. This is a vital transportation hub, vital trade hub, and so forth. And as you probably know, it was also a key religious center. It was the home of the Temple of Artemis, which was not, did not just make it an important spiritual center, but also a great tourist attraction. We want to come and see this place. We want to see the lady. We want to pray to her. Maybe she'll bless our home, our family, make us fertile, keep our crops growing, keep our kids from dying. So, so a lot of stuff going there. In fact, as a result of, of this spiritual presence, particularly, this was a city in which a major riot broke out because of Paul's preaching. Because of the gospel, people were turning from the idol of Artemis to the Jesus Paul preached, and the people making all the little trinkets to sell of Artemis were seeing their profits diminish. Forgive, forgive the modern, the anachronistic terms, but they weren't making money because nobody was buying them anymore because nobody wanted to. Paul was saying they were bad. 
And this city was in an uproar over Paul. I don't know how long it was from that time to when Paul is sending Timothy into Ephesus. And maybe Timothy in part is saying, thanks a lot, Paul. Because I have to deal with that too. But, but not, not the most stable place for the church, I would expect. Uh, maybe even people who have lost a lot as a result of coming to Christ in that city as well. And, and never mind the fact that the Roman Empire itself was not a big fan of Christianity either. Uh, if you read some of the outside sources of this time, Christianity was a bit of a mystery. It was sort of the strange offshoot of Judaism, but what was important to the empire was that this is a group of nonconformists. One of the ways that Rome maintained peace over its vast territory with all these different ethnicities and people groups and, and languages and so forth was that they demanded a, 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 an empire-level tolerance of all religions. And the Jews steadfastly refused. And so did the Christians. And then to emphasize the point of, remember whose empire this is, there was also a cult of the emperor that they all had to agree to. And again, the Jews refused, and so did the Christians, which made them not only nonconformists, but a threat. Because what, what tends to happen when you have a small group of determined people who refuse to go along with everything else? Can you trust them to help you keep the peace? And if you, you want to know what kind of an answer there is to that, consider why Rome felt the need to go to Jerusalem and destroy it to the ground in AD 60. We can't have this. So, challenging times, to say the least. Difficult circumstances. Turmoil within an unstable situation within Ephesus itself and, and within the empire as a whole. This was not a pro-Christ time to be a church. So what does God want his people to do in times like this? And Paul's answer is pray, which I love because it's so frustrating. I think it's putting the point exactly on why we in this day struggle with prayer. Prayer is the thing, is this thing for us to do that doesn't feel like it does anything. Right? Certainly not within our time frame. But even then, we, we are, and I think some of this is characteristic for us as Americans, but I'm not sure it's entirely just American. But we, we, when we are faced with problems, when we are faced with challenges, we just have this sort of, you got to do something. It's a part of living. It's a part of being alive is that you fight, you act, you do, you change things. You don't accept the status quo. That's the heart of, of our revolution, really. We don't need to keep the king here. Let's do something about it. Paul, what do we do with the stuff within our church? What do we do about Ephesus? What do we do about Rome? Pray. And pray first of all. It would be great, wouldn't it, if prayer was like the superpower or magic spell that we actually treat it as. We call a prayer meeting together, and we expect that God... Because there's enough of us, and maybe some of us have even fasted a little bit, cut out coffee before we came, that God, the, meal, the wheels of heaven will finally start to churn and he will do what we want. Doggone it. It'd be great if it worked that way, but it doesn't, does it? 
Prayer often feels weak and pointless. And that's significant at this time. Where we are as a country, where we are as a church, where we are right now, we are being told this is not the time for weakness. This is the time to do something. This is the time to make things change. We don't want any more of this going along to get along. We don't want any more of this niceness or just wait for things to play out or trust in the Lord or thoughts and prayers. We want to do something concrete. And that's not prayer. Or so it seems. Prayer feels weak and pointless. Feels weak and pointless. But I think there's a big difference here between what our expectations of prayer are versus what God's purposes with prayer are. I think we want prayer to move God to do what we want or believe that he wants. And we don't want to feel helpless in doing so. We want it to be meaningful. We want something to happen. But I think God intends prayer differently. I think God intends prayer to be the means by which his people are transformed. See if I can explain what I mean here. Prayer transforms the way we view the world, or it should. First, because it reminds us that the world exists under the reign of an almighty God. The world as we are experiencing it right now is not out of control. Is it? It's crazy. It's haywire. It's perverted. It's twisted, but there is a hand on the wheel, is there not? Otherwise, what do we mean by the sovereignty of God? What do we mean by providence? I mean, just call back to what we read during the confession where where the apostles are challenging the Pharisees that that the one you killed by your hand was the the one God appointed to be the lamb that died for the sins of the world. The church is watching Jesus die on the cross, or the disciples are watching Jesus die on the cross by the hands of wicked men, thinking that was the end. We thought he was the one. That was all according to plan. Even that hopeless moment. The world exists under the reign of God. That's that's one thing that reminds us. Two, prayer reminds us that God is actively carrying out his purposes in the world, not all of which are known to us or meant to be known to us. But but they are being carried out. And lastly, it's a reminder to us that God works on a much different and often larger time frame than we do. God's not concerned with getting stuff done in my lifetime, which is short. Or this week. There are times and seasons where God answers things in centuries or millennia. And what will we say then? How dare you? Or blessed be the name of the Lord. So prayer changes the way that we view the world. Prayer also transforms the way that we view ourselves. This is why we can't look at prayer as the thing that moves God to do what we want. We are not God. That's why we pray. Prayer comes out of helplessness, not of grasping for strength. 
Prayer, prayer is the cry of a heart that doesn't know what to do, where to go, how to achieve this, that gives up with the understanding that God is able and strong and can and will. We are not God. And, and, it, and it reminds us, and I, this, is, this is so, in my evangelical circles, this is so cliched, but it's still important just be reminded of the fact that God does not need us. That's not why we pray. He doesn't need to be informed. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need, you know, he's not workshopping solutions. We need him. That's why we pray. It's, and in doing that, God is transforming us to see that prayer comes out of need and not knowing what to do, and, and needing someone else to step in where we can't, rather than someone that we add as an accessory to our own, our own purposes, our own plans. And it transforms the way we view each other. Prayer ought to unite God's people, because it's when we come to the Lord in prayer that we are forced to face the fact that we are equal with each other before an almighty God. right? There's no one righteous before the Lord. There's no one that has deserved God's grace any more than anyone else. There's, there is not, there's not like whatever the equivalent of like the class hall monitor, like a special status among all the rest of us knuckleheads in God's throne room. It's him and then us. And so, if you, if you follow me with this, I think what Paul is doing here seems actually very similar to what God was doing with Israel at the Battle of Jericho. Here's Jericho, impenetrable, impenetrable city. He's already told her, I want you to go into the, this land, I want you to conquer it, take it, and make it your own. This is, I've given this to you. Here's Jericho, the first one off the bat is one of the toughest places to crack. How are we going to do this? What's the plan? March around it. Okay, and then what? Come back tomorrow. March around it. Great. What's next? Same thing. We're going to do this for six more, three more days. What is it? Is it the collective weight of our feet shaking up the soil so that the walls will fall out? Are we terrifying them with our almighty marching? How does this work? Well, on the seventh day, I want you to blow your trumpets. But the point of the whole thing is this sort of this drawn-out lesson for Israel that all that you've done I don't really need. You're not preparing the ground. The trumpets don't do anything. What I want you to do is to obey me and watch what happens. And the walls fall. Or Gideon. Gideon is just... The lesson of Gideon is so necessary for us today because Gideon is given the impossible task. Take on the Midianites. Who happened to fill the valley like locusts? It's a large number. It's a big number. Great. Who do I get? Well, you know, call people together, and now I'm going to winnow them out until you have 300. And who else? <laughs> How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? You're going to break a jar and hold a torch. And watch what I do. 
Because what Israel needs to understand, and what Gideon needs to understand, is their strength is not needed. Their wisdom is not needed. Their ability to form coalitions is not needed. This is God's fight. And watch what he does. Behold my glory as I work for my people. Do we have ears to hear that kind of message? Is it possible that the things that we're struggling with right now in our culture and in our church could be due to the fact that God's people don't think that God can do a better job than us? There's nothing new about that, right? I mean, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, right? After 10 long, impossible years, how much longer do we have to wait? We're almost dead. Maybe God forgot. Maybe he needed us to figure this out. And so Ishmael, wrong answer. Should have waited. But that's our problem, right? We want to tinker with God's promises because we lose heart rather than trust him and wait to the end. And and it's when that happens that problems usually spring up. Okay, so so that first point I want to make. Second, I want to go through this a little bit more quickly. Paul says, first of all, we're going to pray, but we're to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, even Caesar. And this is is important. This is one of the things that we were trained when I was uh, going through, uh, earning my history degree. Sometimes, sometimes things appear and there's no explanation. You have to read back into it. So, for example, if you, if you have a lawnmower that happens to have the warning on the side, do not use to trim hedges. There's a reason why that's there. Because somewhere in the past, that's exactly what happened. It didn't go well, presumably. There's a reason why Paul, I think, is emphasizing the fact that when I said pray for all people, including Caesar makes me wonder if the spirit of the church at that time was not too dissimilar from our time. That Caesar's a jerk. I'll pray prayers against him. We've got a whole bunch of psalms, and now I can feel very holy in praying against Caesar. But Paul says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray on their behalf. I want you to intercede. I want you to give thanks for them. All kinds of prayers. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Prayer requires us to see the people we're praying for as people like us, like you, like me, and not the personification of pure evil. That is not to say there are people who don't do, it's not denying there are people who do evil things, but it is worldly for us to assign people into such a category that they cease to be human. That's not how God viewed us, is it? Prayer is an important guard against the kind of easy demonization that plagues our culture and and the church today. We We are playing the same game when we build up these pictures of people that we are opposed to or who are opposed to us and refuse to pray, refuse to give thanks, refuse to view as human. I bet so-and-so eats his children. Of course he does. What an evil person that doesn't, doesn't agree with my policies or my politics or my beliefs. 
They kick dogs and run over grandmas and all that stuff. You know the type. And we're staggered at even the suggestion that they might actually be people like us. Who might actually want good things, let alone are people who are in need of grace as much as we are. Have mercy, God, on our enemies. This is a freebie, and this is absolutely, entirely worth at least, if not less, as much as it cost me to say this. I wonder if sometimes we are missing a distinction from the Old Testament, which you have the imprecatory Psalms and talk about praying for God to crush his enemies, and this new covenant in which God, we're called to pray for our enemies. That I wonder if the imprecatory Psalms are not meant to be used anymore because grace has come. Which is not to say that we don't stand against evil. But I think the cross of Christ brings a new understanding to what evil is. And we know it well. If we don't, the danger is that we start thinking of ourselves as better than the wicked ones rather than people in need of grace. All right, that's, take that for what it's worth. Probably not much. So we're to pray. Uh, pray all kinds of prayers for, for all people, including those in leadership. What are we praying for? It's the next thing I want to look at. Paul says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Doesn't that sound nice? That's what we want, right? Doesn't it seem like Paul is saying here that our purpose in prayer is for the circumstances to change? If we pray, then we'll get godly leaders. We'll have a godly country. We will achieve that that return to glory of a Christian America where we can send our kids to whatever schools they want, we want. Where, Where we aren't opposed in any way, where we don't have these restrictions, we're forced to do things against our convictions or against our will. That we live completely free as God's people, maybe even actually enjoy some of the benefits of that on top of it. The authorities will be Christian. Things will become increasingly favorable. Christians will be free to do as they please. But that interpretation depends on how you understand what Paul means by peaceful and quiet. The interesting thing here is that the word there translated quiet is the same word that is used in 1 Peter 3 to describe the kind of character God desires for his daughters. Let me read this to you. This is 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is in, which in God's sights is very precious. And I should add, have added the following verse for context here. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A gentle and quiet spirit is a spirit that is at rest with the Lord, come what may. So that she is not moved, she is not made afraid by anything that is frightening. What if, what if that's what Paul means here? That the point of praying well, the outcome that Paul has in mind is not that the church would enjoy a time of peace in the world, a favorable government, a favorable t- 
town, favorable everything towards us, but instead the point is not to change the circumstances, but change our heart to the present circumstances. Which makes sense when you consider that what he wrote next, that the lives of God's people are to be marked by dignity and godliness. Think about that for a second. When does dignity make sense? In good times? When, when does character itself make sense? When things are easy? When, when you win the Olympics, do we marvel at the dignity of someone who won? Not usually. The ones we marvel at are the ones who hold their head up when they've lost, when they've embarrassed themselves, when they stand tall in the face of persecution. I, I love the story of um, in this, during the civil rights era that the, that, um, the black civic leaders would gather people together to practice the sit-ins in the restaurants. And they would go and they would bring people in to yell at them, attack them, do everything to make their life miserable, to prepare them for the actual thing so that when it happened, they would not hit back. They would not answer back. They would sit in that chair believing that they had every right as a human being to sit in that spot, but they would not lower themselves to the level of their attackers and showed a dignity that was transformative. What if that's what Paul means here? We're to be dignified, a, a peace, a tranquility of spirit that, Lord, come what may, I will not be moved from my hope, from my confidence, from my joy even if all hell comes loose in the place that we live. Even if the worst case scenario happens in our country. We're Christians. We have something better than who runs the White House. And it's these kinds of qualities that when visible, when present in God's people, enhance the proclamation of the gospel. Which, interestingly enough, is where Paul takes us next. Pray, pray, pray for these people in this way, towards this end. Why? Because this is good and pleasing to God who, what? Desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh yeah, the big picture. Why are we here? To carve out a comfortable space for God's church? or to proclaim the Christ to the, to the furthest ends of the earth, that they might hear and believe in Christ and be saved. What is God after? Which kind of, a, when you think about that, kind of changes, or, or maybe should confront the way that we think about our current experience in America. What if God doesn't want a Christian president for us? Or a Christian congress? Or governor? What if he doesn't want or he doesn't intend first to have a government that is favorable towards his people? What if he sees not doing that as the means by which he will glorify himself and save others? Would we resist that? There's precedent for that resistance. Anyone remember Jonah? This is the Jonah dilemma. I mean, if, you, if you've read the story, if you've spent any time in it, the fascinating thing about Jonah is why he didn't want to do what God told him to do. And it's not what you would think. He didn't, he didn't want to go to Nineveh 
because he was afraid of what the Ninevites would do. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid of what God was going to do, which was forgive them. How dare you? I knew you'd do this. There's this great tantrum he throws after God provided shade in unbearable heat for him, showed him a small mercy. And, and Jonah just loses his top. He just goes crazy on God. I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were going to forgive. I knew you would be gracious and kind to sinners. Like me. But it's okay for me because I'm one of your people. But how dare you save them? Friends, are we Jonah? What is the big picture for us? We want to see our opponents ground into the dust. We, want, we wouldn't mind seeing a few lightning bolts from heaven smiting our enemies. Or do we, do we have, do we know God well enough to have that same heart? But these are people who don't know their right hand from their left. They are hopelessly and helplessly lost apart from God. They don't know what they're doing. They need to be saved. They need their eyes open, their ears open. They need their hearts restored. Is that us? Do we want that too? His purpose needs to be our purpose. So, a couple final thoughts. Well, final questions. As we, as we head into this week and, you know, buckle up for what follows, will prayer be our first action as God's people? Are we willing to look weak? Are we willing to pass up the opportunity to take a bold stand for the sake of Christ and pray because we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. We don't even know what we want. Will prayer be our first resort, our first action? Will we pray for our leaders or against them? Will we allow God to change how we view those that stand against us? And what kind of outcome are we praying for? What kind of outcome will we be praying for? We'll be praying for a great America. Let's not forget where we're bound. And I don't, I'm not going Gnostic here and saying that America doesn't matter, but, but if God's kingdom that lies ahead for his people is what we're told it is, let America burn. It doesn't compare. It will never compare. Make it as safe as you want, beautiful as you want, glorious as you want, as prosperous as, as you want. It won't even compare. It's junk jewelry to the real thing at its best. But that's not why we're here, is it? Read Hebrews 11 again. Why are God's people here? What are they looking forward to? Bringing back the glory of David on earth and his kingdom? The glory of Solomon and his kingdom on earth? No. They're willing to give all this up for what's ahead. But they're here to live out God's purposes. Will we pray 
for hearts that are set on our greater God, greater than us. But we pray for hearts that want to see his saving purposes succeed. Will we pray for hearts that want him to be glorified, whatever they may cost us? I feel this as I prepare to go to Thailand. The situation in Thailand is not like here. Uh, Burma is far worse. Burma is a hellscape. Of what use am I as an American Christian if I'm complaining about a government that doesn't, isn't friendly to Christians when their government is bombing them? Hey, pray for a better government. I suspect that the Christians there have something to teach me. It may never change, Pete. But our God is greater. We pray for hearts that are unmoved, resolute, even when the tide is fully against us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to understand you. Help us to understand your word. Help us, Lord, to see how compromised we are by the world we've grown up in and live in. It's just inescapable. We aren't even aware of it. And what you present to us is so different. And we are often guilty of mixing what we think is right with what you've declared. So, Lord, help us, first of all, to see clearly, to to remember the bigger picture of what you are about, to remember that you are God and we are not. We are your servants as well as your children. And, Lord, that you would help us to so root ourselves in that truth that come what may, we would not join the crowds that are fighting one against another, speaking all manner of evil against each other, complaining and whining and crying about how bad things are, but our hope would be in you and we will find the ability to rejoice even when it's awful and busy ourselves with the work of declaring your kingdom and not a greater America. Lord, help us. It's hard. But I pray that the difficulty in our uncertainty about how to do this would bring us to prayer. That is where we belong. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.